this morning's passage. Uh, it follows right up where we left off last week at the end of Matthew chapter 19 where, where Peter had come to Jesus and said, uh, we have left everything to follow you. Uh, what then will there be for us? And Jesus replied that disciples would one day sit on thrones uh, judging the nation of Israel. And to everyone else who surrenders and follows Jesus, he promised them eternal life and that what had been given up and lost and surrendering and following him would be given back to them and, and even more. And we ended with Jesus' statements, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, I have to admit that I didn't do that one verse quite full justice. I had talked about it in more general terms that one day roles will be reversed the last, those in lowly positions who had sacrificed in their surrendering and following Jesus would one day be rewarded and becoming the first. And those who hadn't surrendered and aren't following Jesus, who appear to be getting by just fine in life, appearing to be first, will one day find themselves wanting, being last. But while this is true, I believe there's an even deeper, more specific lesson that Jesus was teaching to his disciples. He had promised reward and then began his first last statements with the word but, as, in, as if conveying a contrast to his previous statements on rewards. And he immediately gave a kingdom illustration to clarify a statement of many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's look together at this parable in Matthew 20, verses one through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I'll give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go, but I wish to give to this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. Now I want us to, to walk back through this Again, this is just a, a fictional illustration. It's a parable. Uh, it contains real life elements in order to convey a spiritual truth. A denarius was a day's wage uh, for a laborer. It was the, the current minimum wage for a 12 hour work day from sun up to sundown. And as is common, even in still some places today, there'd be a group of guys hanging out early morning waiting to be hired for the day. And the landowner, he snagged up all who were there just a little bit before six and, and sent them out into the vineyard. And then he found more at the third hour of the day, which would be 9 a.m. And he sent them out into the vineyard. 
And then even more at the sixth hour at, at noon, uh, and he sent those into the vineyard. And then even more at the ninth hour at 3 p.m. and sent those. And then even still more so at the 11th hour, 5 p.m., and sent them into the vineyard. Even though there was only one hour left in the, the work day, he sent even those out to work in his vineyard. When it came time to receive pay, those hired at 5 p.m. who only worked one hour were given the whole day's wages. At this point, the others were getting pretty pumped up. They're thinking, um, surely if he was paid for the whole day, um, then those who worked the whole day would actually get even more than that guy. They, they were thinking, okay, we agreed to work for a denarius for the day, but uh, maybe this guy actually pays a denarius an hour. Maybe, maybe we misunderstood. But each worker was paid the same one denarius, whether he'd worked one, three, six, nine, or 12 hours. And everyone was upset. Why? Uh, verse 12 tells us they were upset because the landowner had made the guys who worked only one hour equal to those who had worked the full 12 hours in the heat of the day. It was, it was unfair. The one hour guys did not deserve to get as paid as much as the, the 12 hour guys. Well, maybe they didn't get, maybe, maybe they didn't deserve to get paid fair, uh, equally. But the landowner was generous. He didn't do anything wrong. He paid the 12-hour guys fairly and just chose to be super generous to the one-hour guys. So the first shall be last and the last first. That the ones last to come to work were the first to get paid and they were paid equally as the ones who were first to work. So how does this relate to the kingdom of God? Remember, this is a parable about the kingdom of heaven, how it functions. As verse 1 tells us, the illustration is telling us that the rewards of the kingdom of heaven will be given in this way. If God is the landowner, what does this illustration then really mean for the laborers, his, his servants? Some have pulled the meaning to, to be that those who surrender and choose to follow the Lord late in life receive the same reward of eternal life as those who had lived their whole life serving the Lord. And while this is true, I'm not sure that is the lesson that Jesus was intending to convey in this passage. Uh, there aren't any indicators telling us that Jesus needed to address the timing of when someone uh, places their faith in Jesus. Others have said the illustration is referring to the relationship between the Jewish people and the Gentiles. Uh, Gentiles being anyone who is not a Jew. Uh, the Jews were the first people group who were offered a relationship with God. Uh, their people group as a whole had known the true creator God the longest amount of time. But the majority of the Jewish people rejected Jesus as the Messiah and God then flung open the doors for the Gentiles, for the rest of the world, to be in right relationship with him. The Jews had been the first, but because of their rejection, they were becoming the last. The Gentiles had been last in coming to know God's plan, but they were some of the first to receive Jesus as the Messiah. But this is true, but again, I don't think this was the immediate intended lesson to the disciples there in that moment. I believe it would, would appear through the context of this passage that Jesus seemed to be warning his disciples of the attitude that the upset laborers had when those who worked only one hour were paid equally to them. I believe he was warning them of jealousy and envy and bitterness when others would join the Jesus movement, others that maybe didn't get a chance to walk physically with Jesus. 
He was saying, don't be surprised at God's generosity when others receive an equal reward. He was saying, don't be jealous of others who appear to do less work, yet who receive the same amazing, generous gift of eternal life in God's kingdom. Don't be envious of those who surrender and follow after Jesus died and is then resurrected. Peter, James, and John, and you others, don't be upset when you see people from Glady Branch being given the same reward of eternal life. This is good news for you and me. As we walk on this journey following Jesus, we don't have to feel lesser than the disciples. We can rejoice that God in his generosity saw fit to, to reward us without partiality to those who came before us, without partiality to those who physically walked and ministered with Jesus. Peter, James, and John, don't be jealous of us. That was the intended specific intent of Jesus's illustration here, I believe. I believe that was the point of this whole passage. Now, between this passage and the verses that follow, beginning in verse 17, there might have been a little bit of time. At verse 17, it says, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way, he said to them, uh, at this point in our chronological journey, all the passages that we are working with are occurring as Jesus has his sights set on Jerusalem. He has spent some time across the Jordan River and has come as close to Jerusalem as Bethany, uh, two miles from Jerusalem where he, he rose Lazarus back to, from the grave. Um, he's spending time nine miles north in Ephraim, uh, 16 miles east in Jericho. All the time he's in these regions balancing, continuing to teach and prepare his disciples as well as teach the people in these surrounding areas about his kingdom. And then look at verses 18 and 19. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. This is the third time now that we have recorded Jesus foretelling of his death and resurrection. And then in verse 20 through 28, we have displayed for us an event where the disciples got upset over unfairness in a similar fashion comparable to how the workers from Jesus' parable got upset. And then Jesus gives another application of how the first shall be last and the last first. Now, while there might have been some time between verses 1 through 16 and then verses 20 through 28, Matthew records them back to back. And I think there's purpose behind him doing so. The connection is that they both contain people getting upset over unfairness. Let's read this passage starting in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but is for those who for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the 10 became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. 
And whoever wishes to be, your, to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now the sons of Zebedee were James and John. Uh, these were the two brothers nicknamed the, the sons of thunder because of their anger issues. Uh, even with their issues, James and John were part of Jesus' inner circle, the, the circle of friendship Jesus experienced with Peter, James, and John. And John was named the disciple that Jesus loved, uh, having a special friendship and bond with Jesus that was different than the relationship that the other disciples experienced. And we are told later in Matthew 27 that James and John's mother was one of the women who followed Jesus and had been ministering to him during his ministry. This loving mother approached Jesus and asked if her sons James and John could be honored in the kingdom of God by having special reserved seating next to Jesus. Now, she obviously missed or forgot about Jesus' teaching on not seeking out the most honorable seats at a banquet, but seeking out the lowly, humble seats. And notice Jesus doesn't respond to the mother. He actually responds directly to James and John. It, it appears James and John put their mom up to this task of making this request. And obviously Jesus would have known that, and if that was the case, so Jesus says to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink? Jesus was referring here to the cup of suffering, the, the cup that was set before him, the path he was going to take in sacrificing himself on the cross. Now, why would Jesus say this concerning the question of who is seating where, sitting next to who in the, the throne room of heaven? Perhaps the book of Revelation can give us some insight. In Revelation chapter 4 and 5, you don't have to turn there, but uh, you might want to look at it later, uh, we have some description of the, the throne room of God. There John sees a vision and he's getting a glimpse into what it looks like there in God's presence. We're told of God's thunderous throne and around it are 24 other thrones with elders sitting at each. And immediately in front of God's throne, there are seven lamps it says lamps of fire with the seven spirits of God. Also within its immediate vicinity are, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and back and each with six wings. And one is like a lion, one is like a calf, one is like a man and one is like an eagle. And then also between God's throne and the 24 elders throne is, is a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes, and the seven eyes are also described as the seven spirits of God, as were the seven lamps. And then around all the 24 elders are, are countless multitudes of angels. Now, if God's throne room is surrounded by four creatures, seven lamps, a, a lamb, 24 elders, and multitudes of angels, then it doesn't sound like there's a whole lot of extra space for the sons of thunder to hang out, right? In reading the narrative from Revelation, which what it sounds like is that immediately next to God's throne is a place for Jesus the Lamb and a place for the Holy Spirit, the, the seven lamps. Now concerning the difficult concept of the Trinity, we scripturally have evidence for, for God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit all being one united being, yet at the same time also being three separate distinct beings. Even the verses I mentioned from Revelation, from uh, they point to some kind of overlap as the seven lamps are described as the seven spirits of God and also the seven eyes of the lamb are 
described as the seven spirits of God. So now that we have a, a vague idea of what the seating in God's throne room looks like, uh, perhaps we can come back to the question of why would Jesus ask James and John, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? It seems to me that Jesus took the mother's request as being a request addressed to God. The mother's placing Jesus as the central figure in the throne room, yet the book of Revelation tells us that God is the central figure in the throne room. It seems like in verse 22, Jesus is answering as God, uh, responding as the central figure to whom the mother's question was addressed. In saying, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink, it seems to me that Jesus, as God, was saying, there's a spot next to me in my throne room, but it's reserved for Jesus, the Lamb of God, who will sacrifice himself for the sins of the world. Uh, James and John, are you able to sacrifice yourselves in the way in which Jesus will do and thus take equal seating with him? And they responded, we are able. And now surely they didn't realize the whole scope of what Jesus was referring to. But he lets them slide with their answer and basically says, yes, you guys too will drink from the cup of suffering, but the places around the throne are already set. The book of Acts tells us that James was actually the first of the disciples to, to suffer in death. Acts 12, one through two says, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And then John was perhaps the last of the disciples to, to suffer a death by the Romans. Uh, we see in Revelation 1.9 that because he boldly proclaimed Jesus and his word, he was exiled to the island of Patmos, a, a remote Greek island used by the Romans for banishing people they saw as threats. And there at Patmos, he died. Yes, James and John, they did both drink from the cup of suffering. But now look at what happens amongst the other disciples in verse 24. They became indignant with James and John. Merriam-Webster defines the word indignant as feeling or showing anger because of something unjust or unworthy. It was unjust for James and John to elevate themselves and make such a bold, prideful request. They were unworthy to make such a request. It was unfair for them to think themselves above the rest of the disciples. Who did they think they were? And look again at Jesus' response, verse 25. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. How did Jesus tell them they should respond when upset over unfairness? Basically, he said the first shall be last and the last first. If you wish to be great first, be a servant last. Just like Jesus came not to display his, his firstness, but came as a servant, placing himself last. This is directed to all the disciples. To James and John, it was a rebuke not to attempt to elevate themselves in ranking and honor above the others, but to place themselves below others and to serve them. To the 10 indignant disciples, it was a message not to get so riled up and over someone seeking honor, because the only way one could be honored was to first 
serve others. Both of our passages here in chapter 20 give an answer to those upset over unfairness. In our first passage, we see that to those tempted to be upset, jealous, envious, bitter, over others receiving a a generous, undeserved reward, uh, don't be. The last shall be first and the first last. God's gonna sort it out. Don't be upset over his generosity. If God seems to be blessing someone else who's worked less than you, don't worry about it. God's got it. In our second passage, to those tempted to be upset, jealous, bitter, envious, over others wanting to receive a generous, undeserved reward, don't be. The last shall be first, the first last. God's gonna sort it out. Don't be upset over others trying to claim more of his generosity. If someone else is pridefully boasting in their relationship with God, don't worry about it. God's got it. Serve him and others. He'll take care of the rest. He's super generous. And at the same time, there are certain things determined and set in place that he's handling. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you that you are a God of abundance and generosity and how no matter what we've done or haven't done in our life, we can come to you and enter in relationship with you and you make our hearts right with you and even though we weren't a part of the original group that that knew Jesus, even though we weren't like Abraham or Moses walking with God the Father, even still, we have equal right because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. And we thank you for that generosity. We thank you that we too can seek your forgiveness and receive your forgiveness and walk in new life in you. Lord, if there's anyone in this place or listening that hasn't received your forgiveness, hasn't surrendered fully over to you to follow you, I ask that you convict their heart right now that they would choose to do that right now in this moment. Father, then there's times that we get upset over others that want to claim more of your goodness and, and, and want to, to feel special and elevated or like they deserve more. And Father, I pray that we wouldn't get upset over that kind of attitude, that we'd be humble and realize that you know how to give good things to your people. And you are the author of life. You are the author of, of, of joy and, and blessing. And may you give as you see fit. And may we never be jealous or envious about what others are, are wanting or receiving or asking for. But Lord, I pray that we would even be bold to, to ask you for your goodness in our lives. Though we don't deserve it. Though we are unworthy though it would be unfair for you to bless us. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be discouraged in asking you for those blessings just because of your goodness and your love and your mercy. Father, thank you for your truth this morning. Transform our hearts by it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.